I'm Barbara Sibold, CMAJ's Editor of News and Humanities. Today, we're talking with Andrew Skull, a distinguished professor and head of the Department of Sociology at the University of California in San Diego. Professor Skull is an important historian in the field of mental health. His most recent book is entitled Madness in Civilization, A Cultural History of Insanity from the Bible to Freud and from the Madhouse to Modern Medicine. CMAJ invited Professor Skull to provide some reflections on this book in an essay for the Medicine and Society section. We reach Professor Skull in San Diego. Welcome, Professor Skull. Hello. It's very nice to talk with you. I'm just going to start by uh, with sort of a general question here. Could you tell our listeners about your latest book and why you wrote it? I should preface this by saying I've been working on the history of psychiatry for more than four decades, and that makes me feel very old to say that, but mm-hmm. it's the case. Um, and so in a sense, as I've worked and thought about these issues over such a long period, I've been intrigued by the question of the place of madness and how uh, we, we interpret it and how that's shifted and changed over time. Um, and, you know, I'm somebody obviously who's interested in a lot more than simply madness, although that's been my major obsession. Um, I'm very much into music and the arts and into literature and drama and so forth. Uh, and obviously over the years I've encountered madness in all of those realms and it occurred to me some years ago that I'd like to write a book that tried to pull all that together and to see if it was possible to make sense of madness over a long period and to try to work out where its place was in um, our lives and in, in in our societies. Uh, and in a way, of course, that's a crazy ambition, if you'll forgive the pun. I mean, to try to talk about uh, a period of time that ranges from ancient Palestine all the way to the latest issue of DSM is to try to encompass an extraordinary range and to move be even beyond Western history at times and to look at China and to look at the uh, Muslim world and the various ways in which madness has been seen and reacted to and responded to and understood in those very different societies requires obviously a great deal of thought, a great deal of reading. It requires a dependence in many areas on reading other specialists uh, as well as trying to draw one's own conclusions. My own work began with Victorian lunacy reform in Britain a long time ago uh, and then moved both backwards and forwards in time. This is a very ambitious work. It's full of pictures which aren't there as decoration, although I think they've been reduced or reproduced wonderfully. Uh, they're there because they are evidence. They're things that tell us a lot uh, about how societies have viewed madness and responded to it and how messages about madness may have been communicated for much of human history to an audience that was only partially literate, in many cases not literate at all. Um, so it's a, it's a very broad-ranging book. It tries to encompass religious perspectives on madness, medical perspectives on madness, which have changed, of course, dramatically over the centuries. Uh, it's uh, 
by its very nature, one that takes risks and, and tries in a certain sense to tell a very complicated story, not one of uh, unalloyed progress, not one of, of no progress, and, and not one which privileges um, particular kinds of perspectives on, on madness. It tries to illuminate, I think, the condition from multiple points of view. Well, that's a nice segue into my next question, which concerns your CMAJ essay. And you mentioned in there that you're sympathetic with Enlightenment thinkers. Could you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Yes. Well, of course, in probably the last three, four decades, the Enlightenment has moved from being seen in purely positive terms uh, to uh, a much more critical perspective on what went on there. And initially, historians tended to focus on one version of the Enlightenment. Uh, the philosophes in 18th century France, we've got a much more complicated picture of different national Enlightenments now. But I suppose one of my major predecessors in attempting to look at the history of madness and, and civilization in that case was Michel Foucault. And Foucault saw the Enlightenment in very negative terms, uh, the ushering in the age of the panopticon, of knowledge being placed at the disposal of power, of an increasingly insidious kind of tyranny of, of reason. Uh, I still am somebody who looks at the Enlightenment as a period where um, things like the appeals to tradition and authority as ways to settle argument were increasingly replaced by appeals to reason and to evidence, uh, and that's something I feel very strongly about. I, I think it's an era that um, brought about a much more secular outlook on the world, both human and natural, and again, that accords very much with my own sensibilities. And in its better nature, the Enlightenment was about tolerance and liberty of conscience, and again, I think those are values that I, I hold very uh, dear to my own heart. And, and so while I recognize the force of some of the criticisms of the Enlightenment and the ways in which it could be distorted, fundamentally, I think those values are ones we ought to honor and that um, we, ought to, we ought to cling to, if you like. It's interesting that you mention uh, Foucault's, Foucault's seminal book, and you acknowledge that this is the book that sort of alerted you to madness as a serious historic subject. It was called Madness and Civilization. Your yeah. book, in contrast, is called Madness in Civilization. So are these two books similar in any respects? How do they, how do they differ? I think both encompass a rather broad spectrum of human history, or at least purport to. Um, mine, I have to say, ranges much more widely than Foucault's, which begins in the high Middle Ages in Europe and sticks pretty closely to Western Europe. I think much of the time French history is meant to, to stand in for the history of the world, um, whereas I have tried to be uh, a bit more ecumenical than that. Um, as well, it's interesting to note that when I wrote my, my book, obviously uh, I had in mind this relationship between madness and civilization and the fact that to me madness is part and parcel of every society I know, not something alien on the outside. Foucault didn't call his book Madness and Civilization. It's not entirely clear to me that that's the question he set out to answer. What was translated into English 
in the mid-1960s was an abbreviated version of a much larger book which had served as Foucault's doctoral thesis. Uh, and Foucault himself had uh, abbreviated that, that big volume for a French paperback, and it was largely that version that got translated into English. And for many years, I'd asked uh, some of Foucault's disciples where this title had come from. It's not mentioned anywhere in the front matter of the book. And nobody seemed to know. And I finally reached out to Richard Howard, who's a very eminent translator, but also a, a famous poet, and who still teaches at Columbia in New York. And I asked uh, Professor Howard where this title had come from, whether Foucault had suggested it, whether he had come up with it, and he answered, neither. It had been suggested by somebody at the American publishers as a good title for marketing purposes. So in a way, um, you know, everybody in English has always associated Foucault's book as an attempt to unravel that particular question. And it certainly bears on that question, but it does so in a, in a more limited geographical and temporal span than I do. And I'm not entirely clear that that was really the whole of his project. But I think it does spell out an issue that I wanted to address, which was as societies become literate, as they begin to have the means to uh, reflect on uh, human existence, as they um, develop il increasingly elaborate visual and verbal arts, um, so the, the topic of madness becomes one that we see surfacing and again and again. I mean, it, it exists obviously in, in pre-literate times, because if you look to, to Homer, um, that's an, an originally obviously an oral tradition, and even there we see that surfacing. So it's a very long-running thing, um, and my aim in some ways was to look at this phenomenon in the round, so to speak, to try to bring to bear uh, all the multiple perspectives that people have used in the past and in many cases still do today to try to understand why it is that uh, uh, madness is felt and responded to and dealt with in the ways that it is and try to make some sense of, of this enormously puzzling phenomenon that very often seen as a very threatening phenomenon sometimes, uh, as I point out, seen as a source of humor because humor is often the way we deal with uncomfortable subjects. Uh, and all of these things obviously run through, um, in very different ways, uh, a range of uh, events as we pass across large, large stretches of history. And just uh, segueing off of that, um, you write in your essay that insanity haunts the human imagination. What do you mean by that in particular? I think we all recognize, uh, many of us have directly encountered um, phenomena that are at least analogous to insanity. We often have very close friends or relatives who have spent time in the midst of immense emotional or intellectual turmoil. Sometimes we suffered from those things ourselves. Or if not, um, we've ingested substances, legal or illegal, that have altered our consciousness in pretty profound ways. Or we've uh, had illnesses that caused us to be delirious and to sometimes hallucinate. So these are things, this sense that one might lose one's own mind is, I think, something that is a very powerful existential worry. And I think as well, we're often aware of how tenuous 
our common sense reality is and how easily overthrown. So I, I think part of it is that this is an experience something that all of us pretty much encounter. I've had years ago a very dear friend who had postpartum depression, tried to commit suicide, was treated as an inpatient for some months, released, was never mentally the same, and um, very sadly, 18 months later, did take her own life. Um, many of us have had that kind of experience, or we deal with friends and relations who develop uh, dementia as life goes on, a, a fear that it's not just confined to those of us who live off our brains. Everybody, I think, sees uh, Alzheimer's disease as, as a frightful and an unpredictable kind of thing. So I think it haunts our imagination because we're so aware of its possibility. And as well, we see in it... Um, challenges to our common sense um, sense of the world. Common sense really could be seen as, as having at least two meanings. I mean, you can think of common sense as our sense that there's a shared reality out there, a common reality that we all think we share, um, but it's also seen as uh, what we take for granted. And, and what madness does to some degree is undermine both symbolically and very often practically that taken for granted sense that we share a common universe. Um, and in that sense, it's a very threatening kind of thing. Does it have a positive flip side, though? Is there not arguments yes. being made about creativity? You know, all the way back to, to, to Plato and Socrates, there's been, and one can see it in the Christian tradition of the Holy Fool, there have been more positive meanings sometimes. Uh, assigned to madness. I, th I think of Erasmus's essay in Praise of Folly. Uh, and more recently, we've seen uh, many extremely talented creative forces who've had their encounters with, with madness. Um, book talks about, to take two 20th century examples, um, Sylvia Plath, who's emblematic of um, some strands within modern feminism, and Ernest Hemingway, who might be seen as a particular exemplar of masculinity in a very old-fashioned kind of way, both of whom fall victim to madness. And many people think there may be a link between um, manic-depressive illness and, and creativity. Whether, in fact, such a link exists, is, it seems to me un unclear, but certainly that's something people have speculated about. And in some societies, um, people who behave in ways that could easily be interpreted as mad uh, may be venerated as um, having a, a particular insight into hidden realities. Um, one only has to look, for example, at the prophets in the Old Testament to see uh, people behaving in ways that very easily could have, in a different time and place, been seen as utterly mad. Um, when Samuel, for example, speaks to Saul, the first king of uh, the Hebrews, and says, you know, I'm speaking directly to God, and God has told me that you need to go out and slay every single man, woman, child, animal belonging to this rival tribe. Just obliterate them. And indeed, Saul does that, but not entirely to the letter. And then Samuel says to him, well, now the Lord's deserted you, 
and you're no longer uh, anointed as as his king, and you're going to suffer, and an evil spirit's going to enter you. Now, if somebody carried on like that today, well, we don't lock the man up quite so much as we once did, but we certainly regard such a person as being mentally disturbed. At that time, that's somebody seen as divinely inspired. So the meanings of madness, the what counts as madness, the boundaries around madness, these are not um, entirely fixed and determinate. At the same time, for me, it seems there's a core of madness, what I often refer to as bedlam madness, that every competent member of a culture recognizes. Uh, beyond that, there's a kind of penumbra and uncertainty in it, different times and places, those more marginal kinds of disturbance or alternatively seen as shamming or malingering or sometimes as something like hysteria or neurasthenia, weakness of the nerves, a variety of ways in which that can, can be looked at. But, uh, you know, that, that's part of what makes this such a complicated and hard-to-pin-down subject. Well, you've done an admirable job of talking to us about it, and I do thank you for that. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Andrew Skull, a distinguished professor and head of the Department of Sociology at the University of California, San Diego. Please visit cmaj.ca to read his Medicine and Society essay. I'm Barbara Sibold, CMAJ's editor of News and Humanities. Thank you for listening.